Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I am Bridget Scanlon. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts, including topics on extreme climate events, overexploitation, and potential solutions towards more sustainable management. I'm pleased to welcome Robert Meese to the Water Resources Podcast. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining me today. My pleasure. Robert is the Executive Director at the Meadows Centre for Water and the Environment and is also a Professor of Practice in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Texas State University. Uh, Robert has had this position since 2017, and uh, prior to that, Robert worked at the Texas Water Development Board for 18 years as a Deputy Executive Administrator for Water Science and Conservation. So your background is extremely interesting, Robert, because it bridges the gap between uh, the science, the technical aspects, and uh, policy, and really admire what you've been able to do uh, to link those fields. Well, well, thank you. And and you did mention that we were colleagues, I guess, at the Bureau for, I was there for about eight and a half years, which is where I got bitten by the science and policy bug. I worked on a, a study that was looking at natural attenuation of contaminants from gasoline spills underneath gasoline stations, with, with natural attenuation being you know, naturally occurring bacteria that were breaking down those constituents. And so it was very satisfying to do that study. And it was literally placed on every desk over at the, at the state capitol and then and then led to some some substantial changes in how the state was addressing those contamination issues. And so so I was bit by the the bug there. I haven't looked back since. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've known each other since the late 90s when you first came uh, to Austin from New Mexico. and um, the, 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 really, the early 90s, Bridget. Was it? Okay. Yes, 91. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. So Robert uh, recently published a book called Groundwater Sustainability, Conception, Development and Application. And so it's available on Amazon. It came out in January in 2023. And I know what you were doing during COVID, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> and I would encourage listeners to read it because it is a tremendous wealth of information. And I love the historical context you provide for many of the concepts related to sustainability and all of the different examples that you uh, show in the book. And it's difficult sometimes for people outside of groundwater mm -hmm. resources to understand these fundamentals. And this is uh, presented in a very way that people can pick it up, I think, readily with the illustrations and other descriptions. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you picked pick that up. I mean, one thing I, I gained from kind of being a scientist working in the interface of policy and science is that communication is really important. A lot, a lot of scientists and engineers will complain that the policymakers don't consider their work, but but if you're not speaking in a language that they can understand, for example, I do not use acronyms. I'm very anti-acronym. Using analogies, they're not going to get it. And if they don't understand it, it's not going to work into policy. And so that has turned into my writing style. And, and I was very fortunate that the editors at Paul Grave Macmillan, he allowed me to write the book I wanted to write, which is, it is an academic book, but it is written for practitioners, policymakers. I, I just would rather explain things clearly than, than try to impress people. 
<laughs> with my big words. And that's interesting that you 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 bring that up, Robert. I mean, I'm serving on a NASA committee these days, and every word, other word, is an acronym. And I have yeah. missed, and I have to to transpose. The to feds party. are the worst. I mean, <laughs> we were all bad, but but I've been in meetings, sat there for two hours, had no idea what anybody was saying. Yeah, and I, I get it. Yeah, it makes things easier for us to communicate within our own little scientific subcultures, but does create a major barrier to understanding, even even in a multidisciplinary world, let alone the public and policymakers. So, so one of these days, I'm going to write a book that pretty much declares war on acronyms, and probably when I retire, I, I think some people use it as a test to to see if you belong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so to, to write this book, you had to submit it for review, the, the concepts of the book early on. So maybe you were telling me some funny stories about that. Yeah, the uh, Gary Schindel, who, who's recently retired from the Edwards Aquifer Authority, had a professor friend that reached out to him about writing a book on groundwater sustainability. And, and Gary Gary was like, no, not not interested. But he said, hey, I recommend Robert Mace. And so, so I got that call and it, it has been a life goal of mine to write a book. And so, but at the same time, it's like the last thing I needed to do is write a book with everything else going on in my life. But I was like, yeah, why the hell not? And so similar, well, maybe not similar. It's like, like given it's an academic book, it has to go through peer review, which is similar to getting a peer reviewed paper published, but also had to have the proposal for the book undergo peer review. And so there were five peer reviews of the book outline. In, in the scientific world, we make jokes about reviewer number two, who's a real pain in the butt reviewer. And so sure enough, reviewer two was pretty, it was a pretty intense review. In fact, my editors were like, don't worry about reviewer number two. You don't have to respond. And I read it and it was a real angry review. And, uh, but there was also some gems in there, gems of wisdom that I could take. But the funniest thing was the reviewer made a comment that I'm not sure the reviewer intended me to see this comment. It might've been just for the editor, but it was like, this book is too important to entrust to a Texan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I responded to that comment. I responded to all, all this person's comments, but I responded to that comment because the, when people think of Texas and groundwater Managements, they think of mismanagements and they think specifically about the Ogallala Aquifer and the Southern High Plains, which is really world famous for not producing an aquifer sustainably. And when I wrote this book, I could see that that was an example that popped up time and time again across the world of literature. A lot of people don't realize that there are a lot of interesting things that occur in Texas, and we do manage some of our aquifers. Um, sustainably. And so I think Texas has a lot, lot to offer. So right. in this book, it's intended for an international audience. I do have international short case studies in one of the chapters, but invariably I bring my Texas experience to this book and share, share Texas stories, which, which I think are useful for various places around the world. Cause I think the problems we face in Texas are faced across the planet. Right, right. And I mean, I know from my own work, Texas, we go from semi-arid to, to humid, yes. from west to east. So we're subjected to a range of climate conditions, floods and droughts, and, and a variety of different types of aquifers. And I know when I was doing work early on, a lot of the conditions and situations were similar to those in Australia. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of analogs over there. 
So today, I hope that we can discuss various concepts uh, of sustainability from the book. And I really admire how you bring us through the history of these concepts and how they evolved over time. And then the challenges for managing groundwater resources in Texas and elsewhere, and then end up with potential solutions for at different scales from the, the city scale like Austin, where we live, or and more regional approaches. But so let's maybe start off when you talk about sustainability in the book initially. You say some of the ideas of managing sustainability come from surface water and the concepts of a safe yield and things like that. And you are in um, San Marcos and San Marcos Springs, the Edwards Aquifer, which is sort of like a subsurface uh, analog to surface water. And so it's kind of a hybrid between surface water issues and groundwater issues. It's so dynamic, it responds so quickly. And so maybe you can describe what you think the current conditions are like in the Edwards Aquifer and where Texas is at the moment in terms of drought conditions and stuff like that. Sure. So we've just come out of three years in a row of La Nina conditions, which tends to mean and certainly has meant for the last three years, warmer than normal conditions and drier than normal conditions. And we've certainly seen that across the state with with the drought. It's If you look at the drought monitor, it's, it's not been as bad as, as it was in you know, 2011 to 2015. But each drought is different and each drought has a different kind of focus of where it really pounds the state. And in the hill country and the kind of the catchment zone for the Edwards Aquifer and the recharge zone for the Edwards Aquifer has been particularly hit hard in this drought. And so we've seen spring levels decline precipitously, J-17, the indicator well, go down also precipitously for on and off, depending on the day, for the last six months, we've been seeing the lowest flows in San Marcos Springs that we've seen since the end of the drought of the 1950s, since 1957. So like right now, the flow is under 80 cubic feet per second. Normally, we would be about twice that for this time of year. And the only time it's been lower goes back to 57. I mean, that's been pretty con- pretty consistent. Things go up and down a little bit if we get some some rains that come through. And that, that drought is continuing. At this point, I would call it probably a hydrologic drought rather than a precipitation drought. If you look at the long-term rainfall amounts, we're, we're still not normal, but we're not too far from normal. Um, but what's happening is we get, we get a pretty decent rain. Soil will suck it all up. It evapotranspirates back out. And then we'll have a big dry spell, and then we'll get another rain. So we've been getting the rains, but we've not been getting kind of repeated rains that causes a great deal of, of recharge and causes a great deal of runoff. So hydrologically, from the aquifer's perspective, we're still still pretty low flow. I mean, oftentimes people say, we're getting this rain, why are the reservoirs not filling up, or why are we not seeing it? Yet? And oftentimes those rains, you almost need a flood to end the drought. And, and that's what we've seen in, in California this year. They had atmospheric rivers in December and January. And that ended the three-year drought that they were subjected to prior to that. 2017 mm-hmm. was the same. So you, you almost need a big flood to end these long-term droughts. Right. And you need some rains to prime the pump, basically kind of take fill up that soil moisture and then have a big rain on top of that. If it was some, that last major statewide drought, 2011, 2015, ended with some pretty flood, pretty huge floods here locally. 
And what's interesting about that was we'd had a bigger rainfall than the one that caused the Blanco River to flow over Interstate 35 a week before, but there was little to no runoff. But then another still sizable storm hit and then caused that flooding. So, so yeah, the, we, was we that made, the wind? Was that the wind release? It was. Yeah, there was bigger rainfall event before that, but it just all got sucked up by the soil. And then when that second storm hit, it was soil was satiated and phew, just all ran off. So yeah, a colleague of mine was doing a study on atmospheric rivers in Texas for the water, Texas Water Development Board, and, and that was an atmospheric river that came from the Atlantic and Wimberley flood. So understanding these extremes is very important. So maybe we go back to the sustainability book, Robert, and some of the concepts then related to managing groundwater sustainably. The safe yield concept has been around for a long time. Maybe you can explain that a little bit and John Breedehoff's water budget myth, those concepts. Yeah, so the concept of how to manage groundwater is sourced from surface water management. And many, if not most, of early hydrogeologists were, were engineers. And presumably they were trained in how to tame rivers and and create storage from rivers behind reservoirs and and if you look at how they're managed they're they're managed through a, a safe yield or a firm yield type approach one thing i hadn't appreciated till i wrote this book was that everybody uses those terms differently so so for folks that are outside of texas or other parts of the world just know that the definition of those terms is really important but but the concept for surface water is like you build a reservoir and the goal is to suck the reservoir out dry as, as soon as possible. You, know, you want to manage it over the long term. And so engineers will then typically you know, make calculations based on the flow coming in over what's a reliable supply that you can get from that reservoir system year after year without running out of water. That's typically... You know, looking backwards, you know, some of these issues pop up the other Colorado River Basin on did they have enough record, da, da, da. You can always have a drought worse than the, than the drought of record. But that's how that's determined. In Texas, we call that firm yield. Other places call that a safe yield. In Texas, safe yield means something different. It's a, what you can rely on year after year with a built-in safety factor. So anyways, when USGS scientists were doing work in California, and thinking about how to manage groundwater in one of their basins, they uh, ported that safe yield concept from surface water over into groundwater. And then interestingly enough, also kind of brought in um, the mushiness of those definitions. The you know, Basically, it's like how much you can produce indefinitely without causing dangerous depletions. And dangerous, air quotes, is subjective. What I think is dangerous, you may not think is dangerous, or a legislature might not think is dangerous, or the local stakeholders may not think is dangerous. So it's interesting that the elements of our current definitions of safe yield or sustainable yield still build that into the concept. That's also in the book, I read the literature forward in time. So like the first mention of the safe yield concept is 1915. And then I just found papers and reports so I could relive the experience of the development of it. And, and that was interesting too, because people started thinking about different things that were important. In the very earliest days of Safe Yield, it was about maximizing production for the benefit of people. 
and the dangerous depletion related more to maybe creating saltwater intrusion that would wreck the supply. But then with time, as society changed, the definition of safe yield changed, or what was considered dangerous changed to include impacts to other basins, impacts to other uses. In the 70s, environment became important. And so then the environment got, got brought in. As scientists and engineers, we like things to be reproducible. It's like you can't, it's not good if you have a scientific process that if I do it, I come up with one answer. And if you do it, Dr. Scanlon, you come up with a different one. But inherently, a safe yield or really any question of managing groundwater is a policy question. And, and to me, it's, it's policy informed by the science. And policy is messy. It depends on the people around the table, the time that happened, the information known at that time. Those decisions can change with time. And so sustainable yield or safe yield can change as people's policy preferences change. And there's a lot of angst in, in scientific literature, hydrogeologic literature about that, which is unfortunate because that's, to me, that's the way the world works in the policy world. We don't make a policy decision and, and uh, or hopefully maybe you don't make policy decision, live with it to the end of time because somebody made it. How we perceive the world, interact with the world changes with time. So it was interesting to see that angst through time. There, there's also talk in the literature about how sustainable yield is different than safe yield. They're not. They're the same thing. It, it really depends. I think those differences come up when people look in the literature for the definition of safe yield. Because safe yield has been developing over time. And sustainable yield is kind of a term that became popular late 80s, early 90s, that's really the same same thing. There's arguments about you should use sustainable yield, not say safe yield, because what is safe, which part of me agrees with that. I think my, my preference is to talk about sustainable yield. Right. And yeah, I think when you said that a lot of the concepts are brought from surface water, and so when you look at a reservoir, how much water is coming into the reservoir, and so with the groundwater, then people were fixated on what was the recharge rate, how much water was coming into the aquifer. And if you pumped, that, if your pumpage was less than the recharge rate, maybe you were okay. But John Riedehoff called this the water budget myth because, and that brings in, where is the water coming from that you're pumping? The Tice, I think, elaborated in the 40s on. So you're pumping water. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from uh, reach? You're, you're changing the water balance. Before you start pumping, the input to the system is equal to the output. So the recharge is balanced by the discharge or the discharge is balanced by the recharge. Then you start pumping. So that water is coming from either increased recharge or decreased discharge. And so I think... Those concepts are really important. Sometimes it's difficult for people to remember that. And that really is what is the impact of your pumpage. So if you mm -hmm. decrease the discharge of groundwater, then you're going to impact the surface water that the groundwater was discharging toward the springs or, or other things. And so these fundamental concepts are very important. And the connection between groundwater and surface water is critical. Yes. Yeah. And, and you mentioned I said it. San Marcos Springs, which is a great example of that, where historically people use the aquifer. And I would say the state was fortunate that it's a big aquifer. The San Antonio segment of the Everett's aquifer is a big aquifer. Very early on, 
the San Pedro and San Antonio Springs in San Antonio stopped flowing due to production there. And then as agriculture came in and the population of San Antonio continued to grow and we saw severe droughts, then the question was, is what do we want to do with Kamal and San Marcos Springs? Well, the locals up here want to keep the springs flowing. But from the perspective of San Antonio and the irrigators at that time, it's like that water is getting wasted because it's it's coming out of the aquifer and it's going down river. And because of quirks in Texas water law, if you can capture that before it hits a state water course, it's private property. And so there were serious engineering plans to build a, like a linear array of wells between San Antonio and San Marcos to intercept all that flow to keep it from coming out of the springs to maximize production for, for human use. Ultimately, it was Endangered Species Act that saved these springs from drying up. Like this recent drought we're in now, if things had gone the way they were going back in the late 70s and 80s, they'd be dry right now. Maybe they would come back during really wet periods, but they'd be ephemeral. But it was Endangered Species Act that protected the springs. People will be like, well, Endangered Species Act protects spring flow. It really doesn't. It protects the endangered species. And there's assumptions in there. The management of this system is based on a repeat of the drought of record, which for this part of the state is the drought of the 50s. But again, we could have a drought worse than the drought of record. Setting aside climate change, we could have a drought worse than the drought of record. You look at tree ring data, climate change makes it more likely that we're going to see a repeat of the drought or something worse than the drought of record. So there's still a chance that the springs go by despite best management techniques, which is why the Endangered Species Act provides for these refugias. So if the springs go dry and everything gets extirpated and killed off in those springs, those species can be reintroduced. Right, right. I mean, it, the Edwards is a great example because it's dynamic. It responds quickly. You have a drought. It responds quickly. You can see it. Some other aquifers that are porous, media aquifers, sandstone aquifers, or whatever. It may take years to see the response and stuff. So it's a really nice example for lay people to understand the linkages between rainfall, droughts, floods, and 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 the response of the aquifer system. I think one of the aspects of your book that I really enjoyed was your description of unconfined and confined aquifers. And I think uh, that is really important and very difficult to parlay to, to, to lay people. And in, in Texas, the Oglala aquifer is a, a great example of a large unconfined aquifer. But Carissa Wilcox or Trinity others, most of the groundwater is confined. Maybe. And when we talk about, are we okay with over-exploiting an aquifer or water, the impacts, we've talked about the connection with surface water, which happens in unconfined aquifers, but then other aspects could be subsidence or seawater intrusion or things like that. So maybe you can describe a little bit about the concepts of unconfined and confined aquifers and those. Sure. So an unconfined aquifer is, is like if you have a glass of water with ice cubes in it and a straw. And if you pump your little aquifer, sucking that straw out of your glass of water, you'll see the water level on your glass go down. And so where's that water coming from? Well, it's it's coming from the, the drainage of water in the pores of your aquifer between the ice cubes. And so that's an unconfined aquifer. And that's how the Ogallala operates, sand instead of ice cubes and wells instead of straws. 
there's a water table, which is specific to a unconfined aquifer that goes down. And maybe there's a lot of recharge that happens one day. Maybe it comes up. Mostly in the Ogallala load's going down. Confined aquifer, on the other hand, is the aquifer is capped to where it's under pressure. And so in that case, you can still drill a well down into that aquifer. And, and it's kind of like, and I forget what analogy I use in the book because I try different analogies, but one analogy I like to use is like letting air out of your tire, like your tire is under pressure. And so if you go over and, and kind of press on the valve, you can let some air out of your tire. The tire is still full of air. It's just at a lower pressure now. And, and there's a little bit of compression. Probably you can't measure it depending on how much, if you let a lot of air out of your tire, you'll see it come down. But you get some, get some compression from the overburden of the car, the weight of the car pressing down. Somewhat analogous to a, a confined aquifer where you, know, you poke a well into it, the water level will rise above the top of the aquifer. If, it's, if there's enough pressure in the aquifer, it'll rise above the land surface, be an artesian flowing well. And then if you start pumping that well, you'll, you'll lower the water level, but the aquifer will still be full of water. So it sounds a little weird where it's like you pull all this water out of the aquifer, but yet it's still full of water. It sounds like some Yoda would say in Star Wars, where you're like, what the hell does that mean? But it's bleeding off the pressure. And in, the, in these confined aquifers, it's that pressure that's uh, extremely valuable because in getting water to go to a well, one of the factors is, is the head difference or the pressure difference between the background and the aquifer and the pumping level in your well. And so the bigger that difference is, the more water you can push to your well. I mean, in some of our aquifers, it's over a thousand feet of pressure above the top of the aquifer. And the aquifer may be very, very thin. If it was an unconfined aquifer, maybe you have to put in 10, 20 wells to get the same amount of production from the one well in the confined aquifer. And so in an unconfined aquifer, then you're draining the water directly from the pore space. And so the cone of depression that they talk about in a well when you start pumping it is usually fairly local. But in a confined aquifer, then uh, that pressure can expand. And so the water that you're pumping in a confined aquifer is coming from compression of the aquifer and compression of the water. And those compressibilities are uh, almost zero, but there's still enough to, to release right. water. Now, that's a great point. The Ogallala is a fabulous groundwater resource, and it's a big part of what makes it so fabulous is it is unconfined, which allows all those thousands of farmers to, to do their thing. But like the Carrizo Wilcox, which is mostly confined, the Kona Depression around Bryan College Station is like 100 miles wide. So it stretches across three counties. Um, yeah, sometimes there's talk in the legislature about assigning, like if you pump a well and you pull water from someone else's property, you owe them a check because you've, you've taken their water. There's a certain logic to that, I guess. But then I'm like, what the hell does Bryan College Station do when there's probably tens of thousands of property owners that have been affected by their pumping? How do you calculate that? That could be an administrative nightmare in a confined aquifer. And I love the aspects of your book where you're talking about the historical development. When they drilled those first wells into the confined aquifer, they had artesian flowing wells. I mean, and they, they were just gobsmacked. This is a limitless supply. 
and and can go on forever. And of course, they left those, those artesian wells flowing and everything. And I like that you presented your book in a reading forward mode because oftentimes we just think after the fact, well, we knew everything, but, it, but mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to present the story, like trying to put yourself in the position that they were in and what they knew and what they didn't know. And so those artesian right. wells early on, and same in California, they had these flowing artesian wells called a limitless supply, and there's no end to this. Well, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'll drive 100 miles to go see a flowing artesian well and have. <laughs> but yeah, back in the day, the artesian well drilling boom in Western society started with the Grinnell well in Paris that captured the imagination of the world. It was like a well that took something like seven, eight years to, they did a cable tool chipping rather than drilling, but to drill. And it came in flowing an amazing amount of, of water and, and it was world famous. And so that prompted folks to start wildcatting water wells. And so in Fort Worth in Texas, the first big one was in Fort Worth that then kicked off a bunch of wildcatting of wells across the state. And early on, the R.T. Hill, who's like the godfather of geology in Texas, with the best information he had at the time, said some unfortunate things, which was one of them was it's a, it's a he did limit it, but practically limitless supply. I mean, he made some estimates of the recharge rates, which, which were ridiculously high. I'm remembering 50% of rainfall. And in reality, it's, it's much less than that, maybe 4%. And then what actually goes down dip to the confined zones, 1% of rainfall. And so people just drill these wells in and just let them flow down the streets. I mean, it was like, it was like having a Model S Tesla in your front yard. If you had a flowing well, it'd make the neighbors jealous. So they, they drilled hundreds. Dallas was, was jealous and they drilled um, their first one at Big Red, the old courthouse. That well is still there. You can go look at it. And they're still using it, believe it or not, in the Trinity. And it, it came in and just gushed really, really good. And people just came from miles around. There's a, a guy quoted in the Dallas Morning News. He's like, I'd, I'd soon come see this than a hanging. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> and then, then the USGS scientists started realizing, well, they saw the pressures declining. I mean, they were just like, hmm, this isn't good. Realize that... The estimates that they had made about recharge were not correct and started encouraging people, hey, you need to shut these wells off. Don't open them when you use the water, shut them down when you're not to preserve the pressure. But, but people believe what they want to believe. There's a lot of kind of classic human psychology in this and in respect to how we relate to natural, the natural environment, natural resources. And within 20 years, all those wells had stopped flowing. Right. Yeah. And I think in the book you talk about, I mean, most people are familiar with the Ogallala Aquifer and the face of the water there. And many people are familiar with the Edwards Aquifer. But I don't think people are as familiar with the, the, the Trinity Aquifer in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. And you described that very nicely in the book, where you see up to a thousand feet of drawdown in the Trinity Aquifer for municipal purposes and not just irrigation. And that happened in the early 1900s, right? Right. I, I kind of point to it. So I worked on the superconducting super collider site when I worked for the Bureau and was working on putting together a numerical groundwater flow model because the um, Department of Energy was considering pumping from the Trinity to cool the particle accelerator for the super collider. 
And and one of the things when you develop a model is you try to get pre-development water levels. So you kind of see how the system was before there was any pumping, calibrate to that, and then move forward. And so I was surprised, like digging back in time, that found this 1901 RT Hill report with all these kind of shut-in pressures for these wells. And I was just amazed that that was out there and nobody had really dug that far back, which that gave me the history bug. But yeah, people put in all those wells. You, know, you see, you saw a Kona depression or water level declines from 1885 to like 1915. And then things leveled off until pump downhole pump technology became affordable. And then you saw levels drop again. And, and pretty much they dropped those levels down to the, the top of the aquifer, more than a thousand feet below land surface. And, and then what we've seen there is like your productivity of the well, because you don't have high enough background pressures to push the water to your well, went way down. And so I think less than 1% of water for Dallas-Fort Worth is from groundwater. It was a lot higher in the day. It's still an important source of supply. I often describe groundwater in Texas as the gateway drug to development. So people will tap groundwater. And then people will overpump and then have problems with their wells and then transfer to more centralized surface water supplies. And the, the nice thing that you describe about that example, it's mostly confined. And so right, the, the, right. the narrow, unconfined portion, then where there's surface water and groundwater interacting in the unconfined portion, is not really impacted that much by all the pumpage and the decline in the confined aquifer because only less than 1% of it is coming from that outcrop zone. Yeah, that was the other fascinating thing back back in my bureau days was looking at those huge water level declines and they 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 hinged off the outcrop. The, the water levels just hinged off the outcrop. And, and and then that prompted me to go look, had there been base flow declines? And no, there hadn't been. It's a permeability limited system is what it boils down to. So there's a, there's a lot of recharge coming in and then coming out in the recharge zone but only a very small amount of it goes down dip. And so even though that thousand foot water level decline, we've increased the hydraulic gradients or the volume of flow going deep into the aquifer three to four times, there's not been a measurable impact up in the outcrop. That's starting to change, not because of the pumping down dip, but because development has now moved over the outcrop. And so now you've got all these household wells out there and they're starting to see some some water level issues, similar to what we see in our backyard here in the hill country. And and it's nice when you say they deplete, I mean, it's not nice that they depleted the Trinity Aquifer, but then they shifted to surface water and they have all these reservoirs there now. And, and many of the reservoirs at different times are full. And so they could put water back into the aquifer using managed aquifer recharge or aquifer storage and recovery. And I think maybe we've seen similar thing in Houston. They pumped a lot of groundwater early on, then they had subsidence. But we didn't see subsidence in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Maybe we weren't monitoring it as much, but, but you had a lot of subsidence in Houston. And then that caused them to shift from groundwater to surface water. Right. Yeah, I, I did the calculations back in the day up in Dallas-Fort Worth. The, the rocks are pretty competent. The compressibility is low that you wouldn't have expected to have seen, even with a thousand feet of water level decline, you wouldn't have expected to see land subsidence. Houston, of course, is a different story. Those are relatively new sediments. There's been a great deal of groundwater 
pumped out down there. And he, historically, Houston was 100% reliant on groundwater. And some lawsuits popped up of one landowner accusing another landowner of pumping groundwater and sinking their property into the Gulf of Mexico. San Jacinto Monument, which is, of course, a holy spot for Texans. That's where Sam Houston rushed Santa Ana and defeated the Mexican army and Texas earned its independence was literally, literally sinking into the Gulf of Mexico. One of the main roads actually went completely underwater. And so, so there was a lawsuit and then, and then legislation that created kind of a special district, a land subsidence control district down there to basically get, get people off of groundwater onto surface water to, to minimize land subsidence. And so they manage Kind of, kind of similar to what I described groundwater, the gateway drug. They'll let people on the fringes use groundwater, and then they reach a certain point where they then force them over to use surface water to control land subsidence down there. That's particularly an issue in Houston because it's so close to the sea level and the, the massive floods. And, and we saw some interesting things when Harvey came through. For example, I was still with the state and watching that flood pretty closely. And you know, and we're trying to figure out like when different flood control reservoirs would spill, but nobody had gone out and sighted them in a while. And so they'd actually sunk. And so it was hard, hard to figure out what was going on because of the land subsidence. But I mean, oftentimes people think one size fits all. And if you think about California, they've had a lot of subsidence and stuff. But then they think anywhere you have a lot of groundwater depletion, then you're going to have subsidence. But I think, as you say, the Trinity Aquifer is injuries enough and they're not that compressible. Maybe the Crystal Wilcox also winter garden area, there's been a lot of depletion. But I don't think we've seen a lot of subsidence. But I'm not sure that we monitored it. But either. Yeah, I would say stay tuned because there was a paper that came out that was looking using interferometer. Yeah. Satellite data. And, and it was focused on the Houston area, but but it happened to like get part of the Carrizo Wilcox and the Bryan College station. And it showed land subsidence up there. Right. Appreci- appreciable. Right. But not to the extent that we've seen in Houston, where you see the same. Right. So I guess we've talked about a lot of the challenges of the, the initial overexploitation and then the adaptation maybe more where you can move from groundwater to surface water. But in the Ogallala, dried up a lot of the springs along the edges of the Ogallala and the surface water declines. But there you don't have much surface water that you can use. So you're kind of stuck. And the recharge rates are extremely low in, in the Ogallala. And it always cracks me up when people say, well, under irrigated areas, you have higher recharge, but they're pulling the water from the aquifer. <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> it's going through the soil a bit faster, but it's ultimately coming from the groundwater. And so it's not increasing the groundwater storage because what you're pulling out is much greater than what's going back in. Right. And it, it's interesting too, like the numbers I see for total recharge for the Ogallala in Texas, they're bigger than the average recharge to the Edwards aquifer, but we're pumping it at six times the rate it's coming back in. So that's how I operated my checking account in college and it didn't have a happy ending. So. 
<laughs> yeah, I know we did work way back in Amarillo area. You know, we found that they were pumping maybe over 10 times what was recharging and stuff. So you can't do that for, for very long anyway. But so to get back then to potential solutions, and you've been discussing some already shifting from groundwater to surface water where they could. But maybe let's look at Austin as an example. I think maybe you participated in the uh, future planning for Austin, the, the water forward. And I normally think of solutions and think of a bank account. Input minus output is change in your balance. So you to manage it, then you could increase how much you're depositing or reduce your withdrawals and, and hopefully stabilize your your bank balance. So can you describe some of the aspects that they're considering in Austin Water Forward, this integrated water resources planning effort? Sure. So so Austin, in, in response to, for Austin, the drought was 2009 to 2015. That became a new drought of record for the Colorado River there, as well as the Highland Lakes. And it was, it was, it was disturbing. I know you live in Austin. I lived in Austin. It was disturbing to see how quickly those reservoirs went down. Part of that is agreements at the Lower Colorado River Authority and how, how they manage. And, and for the most part, they're looking backwards at the drought of record. Austin got concerned to where you know, climate change is not considered in regional and state water planning. So they wanted to look at climate change. And, and because they're looking at climate change, they also wanted to look out 100 years rather than the 50 years that state and regional water planning is under. I joined halfway through the first round and am and, and with them now through the second round, but I'm part of a citizen's advisory panel to Austin Water in developing this plan and identifying strategies. One, one takeaway with the current plan, we're currently revising it, but the current plan projects the population of Austin proper, not greater Austin, Austin proper, from 1 million today to 4 million people in 100 years, um, which was a shock. It's I'm just like, is that New York City? But it's more density like Los Angeles. I'm like, okay, well, maybe. And then, and then the other shock was that looking at climate change in 100 years, the Colorado River and the Highland Lakes is probably going to produce half of what it produces today. It's, it, it's, so in other words, it's going to become a lot less reliable. You can argue about the assumptions. I think a lot about those assumptions. It is, I, I hesitate to call it a worst case scenario because it can always be worse. Things kind of lean towards the bad direction in terms of the assumptions of looking at climate change. And it's up for debate and how realistic those are. But I'm becoming more more convinced that that's a good thing to do since there's a great deal of uncertainty. So in terms of like how Austin's going to deal with that, the, the biggest is aquifer storage and recovery. They're going to take excess treated Colorado River water during the good years and inject it into a local aquifer. And they haven't chosen, they're in the process of doing studies now, they haven't chosen one, but my guess is going to be Carrizo Wilcox. Has a really good track record with San Antonio who does that with the taking excess Edwards water, storing it in the Carrizo. They've had close to 200,000 acre feet of water stored underground, which would be equivalent to four years of Austin's annual use of water. So great deal of, of storage potential there. After that, it's, it's a lot of kind of using water more efficiently. So kind of like you talked about with your budget, it's like you kind of decrease your use of the resource while also looking for other supplies. And so 
Some interesting things that Austin is looking to do is continue to promote rainwater harvesting and condensate harvesting, amplify their water reuse program. Austin has a new main library down on the lake that uses rainwater harvesting and condensate harvesting to meet all indoor and outdoor non-potable uses. And by doing that, they've been able to lower their use of the Colorado River by 90 to uh, 90%. Austin also um, recently opened up a new permitting center in North Central Austin that collects condensate from air conditionings, rainwater, but then also has an on-site black water, basically wastewater treatment plant. And, and the output from that plant goes back in the flush toilets and urinals again. And they've been, been able to lower their use of their source supply by 95%. I went to that opening. It is, is, I encourage you to go see it. It's, it's pretty much, it's like kind of out in the open. There's interpretive signage. It's the cutest damn wastewater treatment plant you have ever seen. I've never cried at a wastewater treatment plant opening, but I did at this one because it's just so adorable. <laughs> right, right. So so you, you did a report many years ago with Sam Hermit about per capita water use in the urban areas in Texas. And so that report was titled, The Grass is Always Greener. And it made me think of Verma Bombeck's book, The Grass is Always Greener Under the Septic Tank. But so at that point to time, and I'm not sure the, the numbers were about 200 and almost 270 gallons per capita per day or per household. I don't know, was it per capita or per Probably per, that sounds like a total GPCD per capita. Per capita per day. So, so it would be probably the total yeah, indoor use and outdoor. of Austin. Yes, yes. Well, this is probably, this is probably for Austin total and then yes. divided by the population. Right, right. And 2019, City of Austin was saying it's down to 120 gallons per capita per day. So I think the incentives for the indoor fixtures and maybe people converting to different lawn systems and all of these things are reducing that demand and they have to do reduce it a lot if you're considering the population growth. So so many right. factors to consider. And when you mentioned with climate change, reducing reservoirs volume in the Highland Lakes, I guess maybe a lot of that would be increased evaporation related to the temperature, projected temperature increases also. Yep, the, the, yep. Yeah, that's part of it. And then also just decreased runoff. Right, right. So a lot of challenges, but we're always trying to adapt to these and, and to manage. And you mentioned wastewater reuse, and I guess Big Springs is one of the few areas where there's d direct potable uh, reuse globally, I think, or in the U.S., in the U.S. maybe. Yeah, yeah. it's the first place in the U.S. to do direct potable reuse. And, and if uh, your listeners aren't familiar, that's treating wastewater without an environmental buffer that goes back into the drinking water system. Indirect would be you put it in the river, flow it down the river, pull it out and treat it, which happens a lot. Direct is like it's not touching a lake, it's not touching a river, it's not touching an aquifer, is, is direct potable reuse. But that's the first plant in the United States and the second in the world, the first being in Namibia, Africa, that started in like the mid-80s. El Paso is currently building a big direct potable reuse plants that they call it direct to distribution. So, so Big Springs project, they treat the wastewater and then it goes into a raw water pipeline 
that gets mixed with raw water from the reservoir and then goes to a conventional surface water treatment plant. So it's direct potable reuse, but it gets mixed with raw water and goes through additional treatment. El Paso is going to do direct distribution, so they're not going to mix it with raw water. It's going to get treated and then stuck directly into the distribution to their community. So that's uh, an exciting project. And there's, there's, gosh, a dozen or a couple dozen projects in the water plant, including several in Central Texas, to uh, um, employ direct potable reuse. And with the advances in treatment technology, I think that makes that feasible, tertiary-treated uh, wastewater and other things. So I think yeah. those advantages have helped. So, Robert, you're a glutton for punishment and uh, you weren't satisfied with uh, what you had to endure to produce your first book. Now you're looking at another book and maybe you can describe that a little bit for the listeners. Yeah, I didn't learn my lesson the first time, so I thought, oh, I'll write I'll write another book. This one is it's called Beyond a Reasonable Drought, and it's focused on climate change impacts on on water resources. So, so similar to this groundwater sustainability book, I'm writing it in hopefully an accessible way and following the water cycle all the way around to talk about how a warming planet affects every part of the water cycle and then what it impacts it may have on our water resources. Again, acro- across the entire planet, but I'm Texan. I can't help but bring my Texan experience to the table. So there'll certainly be a lot of Texas stories in there to boot. Well, I mean, Texas is a great field lab for many of these examples. You know? It is. Yeah, it is. It has everything. <laughs> so you, you mentioned oftentimes that people don't get your puns, but I guess uh, beyond a reasonable doubt or beyond a seasonal drought. Oh, drought. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be explicit, we can be very subtle. <laughs> I have been warned by editors that that title may not stay, but I'm going to fight for it. <laughs> right. So so considering all the work you've been doing and your involvement with the state and, and now at Texas State University and stuff, how do you see the future of water resources in Texas? Are you optimistic or? On, on balance, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm quoted in Seamus McGraw's book about water in Texas as saying that the Gulf of Mexico helps me sleep at night. And and it does. We're fortunate that we have easy access to desalinated seawater. I, I feel feel like that is going to be a big answer for us going forward. We'll just we'll just see when that happens. Corpus Christi has several projects that hopefully one of those will get realized. There's, there's legitimate concerns about seawater desalination. There's the, the power. It's very power intensive, but I also feel confident that renewables and, and energy can be used that doesn't contribute to global warming can be found. And then the, the disposal of the brine concentrates and the projects that have been proposed and are under consideration now are pretty much discharging into kind of the bays and estuaries. So that's caused a great deal of concern. But, but I feel like that can be engineered in a way to minimize impacts. And Texas does have an incentive for folks to go offshore. However, that's, that's expensive. And then people will also say, well, seawater desalination is too expensive. But, but when you start bringing in these more esoteric reuse approaches, even, even some of the more advanced water conservation techniques, Seawater desalination is either competitive or far less expensive. So 
So I feel like that that's going to get there. What causes me concern is that the state does not consider climate change in its in its water planning, and that's troubling because I, I think it does put a number of Texans, industry, the environment at risk for water supplies. But I also feel confident at some point. We're, maybe we're a little slow in the uptake, but at some point we'll get there. Unfortunately, I think in Texas it's gonna it's gonna be something something scary that's gonna have to happen for things get considered. One of the one of the things I'm working on at the Meadow Center is to provide that information to planners. So at least they have it when they're evaluating their plans. So if, if they want to, they can then build that in. There is a increasing drumbeat of concern about climate change and, and demand for information on climate change in the in the regional water plans. So for political reasons, the state agencies can't address it, but but it's academics. We can. It also allows me to leverage kind of my practical experience with working for the state to kind of provide information that the planners can can use. Well, I think that's a really good summary because we, we generally adapt. I mean, you can see with the drought in 2011, extreme drought and, and a couple of years afterwards, and you could see people maybe changing their lawns and doing different things. It's kind of like quitting smoking. It takes a long time which for things to penetrate mm-hmm. and for people to change behavior. And I was just talking to a colleague from Israel yesterday, and they now get 80% of their portable water from seawater desal. And he explained to me that the discharge concentrate, they mix it with seawater. So when they discharge it, it's only slightly elevated. And they have these long, mile-long pipelines where they diffuse it out into the Mediterranean. So there are a lot of things yeah. that people are doing. And and, and you're right, it's good mm-hmm. that we live, we're next to the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> well, I look at Australia, they built emergency seawater desal plants and in, in that nasty drought from, what, 20 years ago. And they've engineered things in a way that that minimizes impact to the environment. I also think there's a benefit seawater desal the environment because even, even tree-hugging Austin, if there's a choice between putting water in the river for environmental flows versus keeping water in the system for people, what's Austin going to do? I mean, it's going to be for the people. And so if there's a, a true drought-proof supply of water, in my mind, that actually increases the likelihood that there'll, there'll be water in our rivers for the environment. Right, right. And, and the, the wastewater reuse, that's also kind of drought-proof and increases with population growth. So, Yeah, I would argue with you on that, though. I, it's only as good as the source supply. Right. Like, for example, Austin's wastewater. You got to have water to have wastewater. And so if the river dries up, there ain't no right, wastewater. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, our guest today is uh, Robert Mace, uh, and he's the executive director at the Meadows Center for Water and the Environment. And I would encourage you to read his book, Groundwater Sustainability, Conception, Development, and Application. It's available on Amazon. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you for having me, Bridget.